Amen. If, uh, if you're not ready to study the Bible now, I'm not sure what else we can do. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, and uh, we'll be in verses uh, 10 through, through 18. As we go into this, you know, we're, we're in this book for the long haul, and it's going to take us a while, but we're, we're, we've pushed off the dock, we're now out of the bay, and we're out into the deep water with it. And, and Treb talked us through took us through the beginning of, of, of chapter 2 and the, the previous few verses there in 5 through 9 last week, and, and really it was, it was a deep dive, and there's a lot of deep dives in Hebrew, deep theological dives, where we're going to ask you to really think deeply about things, because that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us about, and one of the reasons for that is because this great danger that there, he, the author is telling us about is, is this idea of drifting away. Uh, drifting away from who Jesus is, drifting away from from the reality of who He is, from 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 the, the the great joy we can have as as His as believers in Him, and so, in order to be deeply anchored, we need to often think deeply, and so we'll be doing some more of that today. And we're just going to keep calling you into the deep water. The water's fine; just jump on in, and we'll be doing this together. There's this idea, though, of, of the reason we've titled it Hope and Glory is, is one, we are, a, as, a, as humanity, in deep need of hope. We always have been. And I don't know that if you went back 2,000 years or, or 1,000 or 500 or 200 or whatever, if you take a human at any point in history and you're going to ask them, are they, like, full of hope? Do they need more? That They're always going to say that they need more hope. And, that, and when the, at Jesus' time, when he came, and, and at our time today, we, we, we need hope. And it's this great promise that we have of what God will do, what he has done, what he's doing now, and the hope that we have for the future. And there's this other idea of glory that we see really from the beginning of Hebrews where it starts out with, with the, the sun is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, that Jesus is fully God and we're going to today delve into uh, some of the realities of the incarnation, which causes us to think a whole lot. And, but the, the ramifications of the incarnation in his suffering and what his suffering has won for us. And that's the context of where we're going to go today. If we look back at, at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, We must therefore pay careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away and this idea that Treb's talked about of, of drifting, some, sometimes there is a running away from the Lord, but often we just kind of drift away, and we think that we're just sitting there doing nothing and that we can be in neutral, but the reality is that there's always current, there's always wind pushing us, there's always the world trying to shove us into its mold. The believer can't just be neutral. And so the great warning of Hebrews is be wary that you don't drift away, and now we're going to teach you some things that will help you in that journey so that you don't drift, but that you're anchored in the real hope of Jesus. Okay, so let's get into the passage we're going to study today. And before I do that, I just want to, just want to pray for us again. Uh, at the risk of praying too much this morning, I've never actually done that or seen anyone do that before, but uh, we're going to do it again. So, uh, Lord, we do love you, and we are just grateful to be together Thank you for the hope that we have, that we can cry out to the one true God and that you hear us, that you love us, and that you act on our behalf. We ask you to help us study the word today. Help us worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us respond to what you are teaching us through your word today. May you empower us by the Holy Spirit 
to listen, to obey, and to apply the word of God to our lives. We ask for your help because we are desperately in need and we can do nothing without your helping us. And so we ask for your help. Help us grow in grace and in wisdom and in the knowledge of Jesus, in whose risen name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is uh, Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10, which says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and uh, those, uh, those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, make sense? So let's dive back in and try to figure out uh, what it means. So remember that in the context, every time you read a verse, there is a verse above it and a verse after it. Even if it's the end of the book, there's another book. And if it's the last book in the Bible, whatever. The word in the Bible, I guess there's not an, another word after Revelation. But you can always start reading it. Uh, although when you read Revelation, it's assumed that you've read the other 65 books in front of it. So if you ever read it or like, this doesn't make any sense, try, try reading the other books. But in verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, which Trev talked about last week now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the context is in Jesus' uh, suffering and then God's, the Father's response in, in uh, raising him to glory and honor because he suffered death, and we're going to look at some of what that death accomplished. So when it says, in bringing many sons or sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting. So the word fitting really means uh, proper or right. It was fitting that that God for whom and through whom everything exists. So that echoes, uh, there's a, a doxology in the end of Romans chapter 11 or in uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1. This idea that for whom, that everything that exists, that every, we even sang it in a song, that it was made for God and by him. For whom everything exists and through whom everything exists. So he is not only the cause, he is the reason for everything that exists. So it was fitting in this process of bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, who made everything and holds everything together, should make the author. So the word for author, you may have a totally different translation. It's a word that can mean uh, author, uh, founder, pioneer. It has this sort of nuance of a trailblazer of the first one to go with many following behind. Uh, it can mean uh, the captain, the one who is at the head of a troop of people. And it can also mean a prince, like a, uh, someone who is the representative head of a family. And so if you have a different translation there, it's because it's a hard word to fit in there. And so it says author, meaning the one, the one who's, whose idea, who initiated and who wrote the thing out, that should make him the author or captain or prince or pioneer or founder of what? Their salvation. And it says, make him perfect through suffering. So when it says perfect, don't think of the idea of the fact that Jesus wasn't perfect and then he got made perfect. Not that he was like morally imperfect and then he became morally perfect. That's heresy, just FYI. So 
the idea that Jesus not being, that he wasn't perfect, but the idea of perfect being uh, the highest goal of something. So if you were to say uh, you got a perfect score on the test, or man, today was just a perfect day, you don't mean like a morally perfect day. You mean a day that is the, the apex of everything that a day could be, right? This, you made a, a perfect score on the test. That means the highest goal that could be achieved on the test, you achieved that. The goal that the Father had set out for the Son was to die for the salvation of humanity and be raised from the dead, to be absolutely faithful to him as a human. And that is exactly what he did. So if you look at, in bringing many sons to glory, to go back to verse 9, the context is that Jesus, having, been, having suffered, has now been crowned with glory and honor. In that process of crowning Jesus to glory and honor, he brought many sons and daughters with him. Because it makes perfect sense that if he's going to take Jesus and allow Jesus as a man to suffer and then redeem him, resurrect him, and raise him to glory, that he's going to bring all these people with him. It's fitting that he would do that. It makes sense. It's good and right and proper that God who made everything and that everything is made for him and through him that in bringing all these people to glory that he would also also make Jesus this this perfect ideal he is the perfect captain he is the perfect author he is the perfect pioneer of that salvation he was the first one through and he achieved the absolute perfect accomplished goal of redeeming humanity does that make any more sense than when you read it through the first time? A little bit? There's a lot in Hebrews, all right? So just stick with me. We're going to be doing this a lot. And a lot of the Hebrews is a little less linear than like the book of Romans. And so there's a lot of things that are going to circle back around. And there's going to be threads and themes that you're going to see that go through the entire book, which we'll get into in just a minute. But this idea in verse 10 that, that the father sent the son and the son suffered and he will explain some of what that suffering accomplished, but that he brought many sons and daughters to glory, and it was right and proper and fitting for him who created all these people to, through the glorification of Jesus, to pull all these other people along with him. And in doing so, makes Jesus the perfect example of our faith. So in verse 11, verses 11 through, oh, probably 13, he says, Both the one who makes them holy, which is Jesus, and those who are made holy, which is humans, are of the same family. Okay? So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he goes and he quotes Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8. And, and Psalm 22 is particularly poignant. And that's the, Psalm 22, one is what Jesus quotes from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's this great messianic psalm. Uh, Isaiah chapter 8 is another messianic passage looking forward to what Christ will do. And he, the author quotes both these things. And he's saying, look, the, the messianic passages in the Old Testament, they're pointing to Jesus. Not, not, not just to uh, the Messiah, but specifically to the man Jesus. And he says that basically the idea is that he will claim us as his family, as his brothers and sisters. And it's really key, if you look at he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So I only have, I only have one brother, and I'm never ashamed to call him my brother, and because he's my brother. So no matter what he does, I, I don't want to be ashamed to say, that guy's my brother. I know many other people who have other siblings that you may very well be ashamed to call him your sibling. You'd be like, that guy is, yeah, he's my brother. Um, 
or that's my sister, or, but, but Jesus is never ashamed to call you or to call me his brother or sister. Not ashamed. Why? Because that familial relationship is not based on what you and I do. It's based on what he did. It is because of what he did that he is the one who makes us holy. And because he is the one who makes us holy, he doesn't have to depend on my behavior for my identity. It rests entirely on who Jesus is. And he is never ashamed to call us brothers and sisters in him. So rolling into verse 14, and 14 through 17 is, is going to tie in this, this idea of what was accomplished through his suffering. And this is going to get into the idea of, of the incarnation and why Jesus had to become uh, a human. Since the children have flesh and blood, to the children talking about the, the people that, uh, that are bring, the many sons and daughters that are being brought to glory, and these people that will be called family, since the children, which is humans, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who by who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So the children have flesh and blood. That's human. We even have this phraseology today when we say, you know, she's my own flesh and blood. Like this idea of family is this own flesh and blood. Like they're flesh of my, they're from me. They're a member of my family. And in, in different cultures, uh, somewhat in ours, but, but in, in other cultures where, where community and family are, are more of a uh, central part of, the, of the, the construct of society, family is like really important. Uh, really, really, matter of fact, it, that it's okay to sin or break a law as long as you're protecting your family. Like, it doesn't matter, because the higher value is family. Not that Jesus sinned or broke the law, I'm not saying that. But the idea that the children have flesh and blood, meaning we're humans. You and I have flesh, physical bodies. Because of that, he shared in their humanity. Why? Do you see the so that? Anytime you see a so that, or a therefore, or a... Uh, uh, or in order that, you want to pay attention. The author is always linking two things. So since we are humans, he shared in our humanity. Why? So that by his death as a human, he might do what? Do two things. Destroy and free. The word for destroy, him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Uh, that word can mean um, to, to um, remove the, the power of or to render something powerless and I just, you know, think about the devil as a lion in, in Peter's writings, and I just think of this picture of Jesus just kicking the teeth out of the lion. He took away his claws, and he took away his teeth so that he can roar, but he can no longer destroy the children of God. He cannot. Now, the, the idea that the devil has this power over death, remember, the devil had to ask permission to, to ruin Job's life. He had to go before the throne and say, yeah, you say that he's righteous. Let me put him to the test and see what he does. And there's a whole other set of questions that that gives us that we're not going to get into today. Other than that, that, that the devil is under, always under, will always be under God's authority. It's not like the devil and God are equal and they're battling for the souls of humanity. The devil is a creature created by God and who has fallen and yet has enormous power. He also, one of the main powers he has is to accuse us of sin and to stand before us and say, they're sinners and you're holy and you have to judge sin, God, so what are you going to do? Which just makes me really mad because he started the whole thing anyway. Like Adam and Eve were fine and then the devil comes along and is like, hey Eve, did God really say what he said he was going to do? Is that really what he meant? Is it really if you eat that fruit and he just, oh, he just makes me so mad. 
But Jesus came and he destroyed or removed the power from or made inert him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And he freed, so he did what? Destroyed the devil and freed who? Those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Who is that? Humans. Human beings. Mankind. And he freed us when we were held in slavery by their fear of death. Verse 16 says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, meaning humankind. You can get into all that because he obviously helps uh, anyone who is not just the physical descendants of Abraham, but humanity. That it is not, he did not come and die on the cross in order to redeem the angels. There's apparently no grace for angels. Apparently they got one shot, you rebel, you're done. That's it. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the angels look at grace with such wonder. Because in all the power of angelic beings, there is no grace for them. At least not that is written in the Bible. There may be something, I don't know, outside of something. I have no idea. You can get super weird talking about angels because the Bible doesn't have a lot in there about it, about them. There is like the angelology course in seminary is like two weeks. And they're like, okay, that's about all we got. Otherwise, we get really weird. Um, but Jesus, it, surely it is not angels he helps but Abraham's descendants. And then in verse 17, for this reason, or therefore, so that, because it is humans that he helps, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Okay, so in these three verses, there was just a whole lot of information. But this idea that, remember, the context of this this is us drifting away He's warning us about drifting away from the truth of who Jesus is. And so he's coming in, and at the beginning of the book, he's declared the deity of Jesus. Remember, he says that the Son is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is God. And he's coming in now, and he is talking about the humanity of Jesus, that he is both fully man and fully God. And why is that important? Any single heresy, any single uh, cult always attacks one of those two things, either Jesus' humanity or his deity, because it is in the incarnation that we have the perfect solution for the problem of sin. Because we are humans, Jesus had to share in our humanity. Because he is coming to redeem Abraham's descendants, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, so that he might become a a merciful and faithful high priest. So we're not going to dig into too much this theme of the high priest, because uh, the next seven chapters of Hebrews are going to explain that. So We will get into that a whole lot, and by the time we get through this book, you will have a great idea in your mind of what it means that Jesus is our high priest. But the reality that a priest had to be part of the people he's he's working for. So you have this concept of the nation of Israel, and then the priesthood, and then God. That the priest stood here as this advocate between holy God and sinful people. And this picture that we'll get into later that the book of Hebrews is going to explain, this idea of there is this altar and, and, and there is a sacrifice that gets made and the priests do that. The priests made atonement for the people. So they came and they would make a sacrifice and it would, it would pay for, it would, it would atone for the sins of humanity, of the Israelites in particular. And so he's looking back at this priesthood of Jesus That in order for him to make atonement, he had to be like us. This is a great mystery of the incarnation. 
but it looks at the great mercy of God and his love for us. See, he sees us in our, in our, in our desperate, sinful state. And his love, because of his love, because of the state that we're in, he does something about it. And he does this impossible thing that he lays aside the glory and the prerogative of his deity, as you see in Philippians chapter 2. And he was born through a virgin as a little baby in a little backwater town in, in Israel. And he grew up and he learned things. And he, he, Jesus learned how to walk and he got tired and he got thirsty, and he, he hurt, and he suffered pain and torture, and he suffered uh, mocking. Why? Because that's what we suffer. And so he entered into our very suffering so that he could be a merciful high priest. And not only that, but he couldn't just be a priest that we could just relate to and say, yeah, Jesus, man, he's like me. He also made atonement for the sins of the people. And so the idea of atonement is that there is a holy God and there is a sinful people and that the wages of sin is death. That when death gets paid, excuse me, when sin gets paid, it gets paid in death. Human sin has a cost always. The concept that sin we can sin willfully and wantonly without any cost is a lie of the devil. And the Jesus Jesus may have kicked out his teeth, man, he can still vomit out lie after lie after lie after lie and we just believe him. We think, well, I can just do whatever I want to, and there's no real cost. Really? Why do we think we have a cross here? Why can we decorate it with flowers? It is an instrument of death and torture. And it is the reason that we can decorate it is because Jesus conquered death on it. And we can celebrate what he did because of our sin. And so when we read this, and the author of Hebrews says, don't drift away. Don't drift away from the center of who Jesus is. And we drift away by sinning. And he's saying, stop it. Jesus made atonement for you. He saw you in your sin, and he died for you on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is who he is. And look at verse 18. It says, because he himself, Jesus, suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help or come to the aid of those who are being tempted. So when it talks about Jesus suffering temptation, he doesn't suffer temptation like you and I do. Meaning, when I say I'm suffering in temptation, generally I mean is I'm tempted to sin, and then I sin, and then I suffer the consequences of my sin. That is not what happened to Jesus. He did not sin and then suffer the consequences of sin. He suffered the full consequence of my sin on the cross. But he suffered the temptation to do what? Well, look at the devil tempting him in the desert. What does he tempt Jesus to do? He tempts him to trust in himself and not the Father. That is what he tempts Jesus to do. He says, you're hungry? Good. Make bread out of stones. You want power? I'll give you power. You want to be freed from this? You want to save all these people? Just, I'll leave them alone if you just do it my way. He tempts him to trust in himself instead of his Father. And Jesus rejects that. And by faith, as Peter says, continues to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Jesus suffered when he was tempted. And so do you and me. And because of that, he's able to help us who are being tempted. The word able there really means that he has the power. So that he has power to do what? To help. The word for help there uh, can be translated to run to the cry of. So that you hear like the old New King James is sucker. 
that you, uh, someone cries for help and you run to their aid. And it's this idea of someone's cry being heard and the person who hears it goes to help them. If we were all sitting in here and we heard a child screaming, we would run outside to see what was happening. If we heard a kid screaming in pain or in terror, I couldn't keep you in here. I don't care if you've got kids or not, you'd be out the door. Why? Because God, because we're made in his image, are hardwired to respond to a cry. Whether it's a baby or a child or an adult, when someone cries for help, we have to repress the urge to help them because God's made us in his image. And Jesus has the power to help those who are crying out to him when they are being tempted. Because what do we do with all these things? All right, so remember, in, in the context of not drifting, right? This is really almost the context of the entire book of Hebrews. He's, the author will be teaching us all of these things, but it's so that we remain faithful to Jesus. That in the context of that, that Jesus has suffered on our behalf, he has become incarnated, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and it accomplished several things. And we're just going to look at three of those things from this passage. And one, that by Jesus' uh, incarnation and his suffering and his death and subsequent resurrection, that we are family. He has made us family. And I can say that you are my brother and that you are my sister and that I am your brother in Christ because of what Jesus has done. This idea of family is, is about identity and about belonging. Family is supposed to be the place where you always can be just who you are, where you are accepted and that you were loved, where you are worthy of someone's love and acceptance just because you exist. And in the earthly family, this is not always the case, in case you haven't noticed. Families can be a wee bit messy and sometimes deeply broken and sometimes incredibly toxic and terrible. But the family of God is family. Jesus is our, he's like our big brother, right, in this picture. He is the one who went before us, he saw us in our need, and he came to save us. And he leads the way. He's like, do you want to know how to be faithful? I'll show you how to be faithful. I am your salvation. Follow me to the Father. He is the one that we look up to. And he's the one that holds us all together. He gives us belonging. And he makes us a family. So we talk about uh, talking to your own family. So if you're looking at application of things, okay, if, if, the, if what Jesus has done and his, his death has made me his brother, and has made me brothers and sisters with all of these people, then what am I supposed to do with that? Well, we're supposed to love each other is what we're supposed to do with it. And you think about the fact that we haven't seen some of your faces in a long time and how much joy we have in doing that. So a question I have to ask you is, is there someone in this church whose face you haven't seen in a while, and are you going to reach out to them or not? Because they're your family. Jesus has made us family. So there's someone you haven't seen, and the Lord is laying them on your heart. Reach out to them. Make, them a, make a phone call, an actual doo -doo 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 -doo, dial the number, call them on the phone. Talk to them. Go to their house. Write them a letter. Do that, write in papyrus or whatever. Just go and visit them. Physically go see someone that you haven't seen in a while. Knock on their door. It's a terrifying thing to knock on someone's door now. It's like... Doors are now, it's like we live in these weird pods and you have to invite people over and you have to make sure it's all clean before people come in so they don't get covered or whatever. Just knock on somebody's door. Find someone that you haven't seen in a while, even if they're not in this church. Maybe they're actually in your own family. Go get them. Tell them you love them. Tell them that we miss them because you're their brother or your sister in Christ. And they, they belong as part of a body. And if they're not, they're drifting. They're drifting.
and the devil is coming after them, and the world is pushing them away, and we have a responsibility to bring them back in. We are family, which means that you have belonging and acceptance in the family of God. And if we don't treat you that way, that's on us. But guess what? It is not dependent on how faithful I am. Your acceptance into the family of God is dependent on how faithful Jesus is. It was what he did that made you family. Do you see that? It was fitting in bringing many sons to glory that for God, for whom and through all things as this should make the author, Jesus, of their salvation, this perfect captain through his suffering, that in his suffering he brings us to glory through his suffering. And because of that, you are part of the family of God. If you want to walk away, walk away. But you're still part of the family. And you can't do anything to earn it or to maintain it. It's given to you. Christ gave it to you. And he holds it out to you today. That you can receive love and acceptance here in the family of God. The next thing it is is that we are free. Not only he destroyed the devil, destroy the power of the devil, but he has freed those who in their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. What are you afraid of then? Because the worst thing that can happen to any human is death. Now, I know that we would probably argue that there are some things we can suffer that would be worse than death. But ultimately speaking, like the worst thing you can do, the worst thing that humans suffer and what humans strain against is death. And us and all of our ingenuity and all of our brilliance and all the collective capacity of humanity since the beginning, we have not been able to overcome this giant problem of death. We've even, science fiction writers, have even come up with these crazy ideas. I guess it's not science fiction if they're just scientists. I'm making this giant thing, you can Google this later, called the Dyson Sphere. If you Google Dyson Sphere Resurrection, it's bizarre what people are doing. But it's this idea that how can we live forever? How can we live forever? Well, we can have these uh, android bodies that we can make, and then we'll have to have a mind implanted into it and have to have this giant artificial intelligence that will manage all of our memories. In order to power that, we've got to make this giant thing that nanobots will make around the sun in order to power the artificial intelligence so that we can live forever. Jesus already did it. He already died on the cross and rose from the dead and said, if you believe in me, you'll live forever. And yet we come up with these crazy, bizarre ideas of how can we live forever. And Jesus says, believe in me and you'll have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we have the message of life. We have it. So take it. Take it to your neighbor. Take it to your lost friend. We just recently moved and we're surrounded by unbelievers again. Hallelujah. I wish that I had a group of church people around me, but I'm much happier that I'm surrounded by, 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 by two uh, gay men and a Muslim family. Two gay couples and a Muslim family are my three closest neighbors. Praise Jesus that he puts light in the darkness. Just because we're in Oklahoma doesn't mean that people don't know this. People still live in fear of death. Just ask Gary when he goes into the cancer ward. Ask them if they're afraid of dying. And God sends Gary in there as light in the world to go to those people who are at fear of death. That when I sat in the office and they get the stage four prognosis for my dad's cancer, and he looks at me and with tears in his eyes said, I have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I'm free of the fear of death. And he could walk through five years of cancer treatment fear-free. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Because he became a human. Because humans die because of sin. And we are free from that fear. So live like it. Live free of fear and tell people about it. The third thing is that we have help. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. Because the 
writer of Hebrews uses all these psalms. I wanted to end by going to Psalm 118 today because it talks about this. I put a mark in there so we don't have to turn take me so long. There it goes. Okay. So this is Psalm 118. And just to realize that, that you are not without help, that we as the family of God are not without help in this desperate journey of faithfulness. It's hard to continue to believe and to continue to trust and to continue to grow because everything is against us. But one thing is for us, and that is Jesus. Listen to this. Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good, for his love endures forever. This is a thousand years before Jesus got here. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. Look at this in verse 5. In my anguish or in my distress, I cried to the Lord and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me and I will not be afraid. It's almost like the same spirit wrote this psalm that wrote Hebrews. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemy. This is Hebrews chapter 2. Do you see this? God has already kicked the teeth out of the devil. So when he comes to bite you, tell him to go away. When he roars at you, roar back in prayer. Say, Jesus beat you. Go away. When he comes to tempt you with things, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and cry out to him because he will help you. So as you go about your week this week, and as you go about... Just life, and this world is a mess. We say it all the time, but just, if you don't think it's a mess, just turn on the news, get on social media, read a paper, walk, drive, go get a burger. It's a disaster. The whole world is broken. Tree limbs are broken. We're st I mean, it's just, it's broken. We need help. And I don't know about you, but I don't feel adrift I feel the world and all these things blowing hard against me and that I need to be anchored in something and the something we need to be anchored in as we're going to go back to over and over and over and over and over again is Jesus because he is the anchor of our souls. So I want you to remember that in Christ, because he came and was a human, that we are family, that we are free, and that we have help in our time of need. Let's pray. Lord, I, I come to you this morning and I, just, I want to just take a moment as the, the worship team comes up here and I want to give us an opportunity to, to just be with you and to listen to you and to, to not leave here until we respond to what you're doing. And so I, I just pray for us this morning, Lord Jesus, that if, if we are struggling with drifting away from you, that you would anchor our souls in you. That if, if you are feeling abandoned, if you are feeling left out, if you are feeling like you don't belong anywhere, that we would, that the message of the truth that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters would sink into our hearts, that we would respond to you in worship, that we would freely accept the belonging that we have in you, Jesus, that we would realize that we need help and that we would cry out to you for help today, that as we close our time in worship, that I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would take this time to cry out to you to help us, to help us as we are tempted to sin, to help us as we are tempted to passivity and to drift, 
to help us as we are tempted to live in the fear of death, to live in the fear of anything, and that we would live in the strong courage of our risen Savior, that we would not fear the devil, that we would not fear death, that we would not fear anything because you came and were made like us. You came and you entered our suffering, and you know that we needed you to do that so that we could relate to you so that we could look to you and so that you could say to us, I know what it feels like to be tempted and I'm here to help you. Help us to turn to you, Lord Jesus. In your risen and exalted name we pray, amen.